Thank you, Jim. And what a privilege it is to be together again, to be able to open the word together and encourage one another. I loved uh, Jonathan Murphy's message today, so relevant and uh, so appreciate the exposition of scripture to open the Bible and to apply the Bible. What a great, great privilege, and uh, he does it so well. I saw a travel website a few weeks ago that talked about uh, wheelchair assistance for people who get on the airplane early. I'm not at that place yet in my life, but I see it happening all the time. It seems like every time I'm about to get on an airplane, I uh, notice that that the wheelchairs go in first, as they should. But this particular article uh, was from a Southwest Airlines flight where 20 passengers were assisted with boarding using wheelchairs. Where do you find 20 wheelchairs? Southwest Airlines, but I guess they've got them. So they all, 20 of them, go on early, and the stewardess or the flight attendant noticed that when the flight was done, only three of them used the wheelchairs to get off. She called it an in-flight miracle. <laughs> I mean, you get on early. You get, the, you, you get to put your stuff up ahead of everybody else. Another way to do it is uh, when this family of six was traveling, a young family, but they were traveling with their grandmother. And so they asked grandma to sit in the wheelchair, and all six get to get on early. Thanks, grandma. Thank you so much. But obviously, we look at that and we think, eh, that's not just using the system, that's abusing the system for those particular people that really need it. And I think about our Christian lives. I mean, there's so many privileges and opportunities that we have to sit in the wheelchair, to, to pretend that we're a certain way when in reality we're only doing that in order to gain an advantage that isn't necessarily ours to take that the Lord wants us to be genuine and wants us to be real appliers of the Word of God. We have been, the last four weeks, this is now Sunday number five, on a Q&A that we've worked our way through nine pages of questions. And they've been great questions, but they've been so great that they've required five weeks of looking at it. And today, There's actually three questions left that we're just going to dump into a message. So you may not necessarily hear the questions asked, but if you've asked the question, you'll know that it's being answered. As we look at this idea of the Christian life, and particularly application in the Christian life. So turn, if you would, with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 is actually part of a Q&A that Jesus did. Jesus' disciples came to him and asked him a question. We're going to look at 25, but if we were to look out back at uh, chapter 24, the beginning of 24 is where the questions are asked. Jesus had just come out of the temple, and he had just said, to all the religious leaders and basically telling them in the temple, you're not going to see me here in the temple again until you learn to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until you recognize me as the Messiah, I'm not coming up on the temple mount again. And as he's walking out, the disciples, it's almost like they didn't hear what Jesus said, but they, they asked him, Lord, look at this beautiful building. And Jesus says, see this beautiful building? Not one stone's going to be left upon another. Well, this sort of gets on the disciples' minds, and they immediately ask Jesus the question, when are these things going to happen? Which leads to the answer. So Jesus' Q&A is the Olivet Discourse. They sit on the Mount of Olives overlooking the Temple Mount. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you can picture that in your mind, of standing there on the Mount of Olives overlooking the beautiful Temple Mount, and Jesus explains what's going to happen in the end times. And in Matthew chapter 25, he tells a number of parables that talk about the kingdom and what the tribulation period particularly is going to be like. And at the very end of the chapter, starting in verse 31, there is this parable 
that raised a question, at least in our class, that we will look at and answer in context with a couple of other spots. So Matthew 25, verse 31, look at what Jesus says. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, or and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these my brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, To the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The question is, I mean, you look at these verses just as is, and it appears that, okay, so the righteous do all these good things and they go to heaven, and the unrighteous do all these bad things and they go to hell. In other words... We're saved by our actions and not by what the rest of the Bible seems to indicate. So it can be a little bit disturbing to look at this out of context, but thankfully, we won't do that. (laughs) We're going to look at it in context, and the great thing about Matthew chapter 25 is that it comes after Matthew chapters 1 through 24. We're not going to look at all Matthew 1 through 24, But we will flip back to Matthew chapter 5, because a very similar thing is said by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And I love that Dr. Murphy referenced this. I love that you ladies are going to be studying this, because we're going to be talking about the principles of the Sermon on the Mount here in a few minutes in the book of James that are very, very similar to what we talked about initially about sitting in the wheelchair as Christians. Matthew chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount. What was the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? We've all heard of it, but what was its purpose? Jesus just one day decided, you know what, I'm going to preach a sermon. We're all here on the Mount, and uh, I've I've been wanting to share this with you, so here we go. No, he he had a very specific purpose, and if we look at the flow of Matthew, Once you get past the birth narratives of Jesus being born, fulfilling scripture, and then you have in chapter 4 Jesus being tempted, and then Jesus begins to preach. And in chapter 4, his message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom is sort of a key word if you've got a Jewish mindset, and Matthew is writing to Jews. If you've got a Jewish mindset, kingdom is not, you know, we die and we go to heaven, the clouds, that type of thing. But kingdom is Messiah comes, reigns on this very planet, and conquers all the Gentile rulers. And, and Israel at this time was being overlorded by the Romans, and so everyone was expecting and yearning for the Messiah. And so when Jesus comes saying, kingdom, repent for the kingdom is coming, everyone's interested in the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount tells how to get into that kingdom. And he begins with these eight Beatitudes, 
And notice how many times Jesus refers to the kingdom in the Beatitudes. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And on and on it goes. But uh, to get down to the nitty-gritty, if you look at verse 20, Jesus begins to set up the problem for those who wanted to get into the kingdom. Verse 20, Jesus says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be better than the best religious leaders. How do you think that landed? On everybody to hear, wait a minute, these people that have been teaching me all my life, you're telling me I've got to be more righteous than them? Where does that leave me? So that's number one. That, that pulls slat number one out from under your bed. Slat number two, three, four, five, and six comes when Jesus, at the end of that chapter in verse 48, Matthew 5, 48, raises the bar even farther. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So not only do you have to be better than the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, you've got to be as holy or as perfect as God. Now where do you think everyone sits? There's got to be a ton of confusion in their mind. And he just sort of leaves it there for now. He sort of sets it up, leaves it there, And then in chapter 6 begins this this wonderful moral obligation of Christians to live, of Christians, of believers in the Messiah, I should say, in this this context, the literal context. Those that want to enter the kingdom, here's the life, the perfect life that God wants us to live. And it is an ethic. Dr. Toussaint used to to talk about this as the kingdom ethic. It is this ideal kingdom ethic that we are called to, that we strive to, that we all fall short of, but it's it's the example that we are to follow. No hypocrisy. Don't worry. Chapter 6, don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Here's what to pray. Uh, Chapter 7, don't judge others because you're going to be judged in the same way. And then at the end of uh, chapter 7, he doesn't just leave them hanging. He closes the loop and says, now let me tell you how to enter that kingdom that I said that's basically impossible for you to get in. He says in verse 13, chapter 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And then he says, Beware of the false prophets. He says you're going to know them by their fruit. And then verse uh, 21. See if this doesn't sound very familiar to what we read in chapter 25. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Interesting. Jesus calls all these wonderful deeds lawlessness. In your name they prophesied. In the name of Jesus they cast out demons. In in Jesus' name perform many miracles. Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Remember, keeping all of this in context, to do the will of the Father is that we know and believe in Jesus. It's not simply that we do good deeds. Notice Jesus says in verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. That's the key. That's the narrow gate is knowing Jesus. And then he says, you who practice lawlessness. The idea there is even great deeds can't erase sin, but sin separates us from God. That's why Jesus said, depart from me. 
And so Jesus basically sets himself up as the only single solution, the narrow gate to entering the kingdom, is knowing him, knowing him. And of course, there's much, uh, much more teaching other places, like in John, where he gets into what it means to know him, to be born again, to believe. This isn't the only place Jesus teaches this. But this gives context, I think, to chapter 25, that the basis of that judgment in chapter 25, which basically comes at the end of the tribulation period in prophecy, where Jesus comes and all the Gentile nations that are left, Jesus separates the Gentile nations into believers and unbelievers, and believers apply the Bible. Unbelievers do too, but they do it out of relation, outside of a relationship with God or Christ. But believers do it in the context of a relationship with Christ. Same thing here in the Sermon on the Mount. And one other thing that's uh, fascinating to me, it just structurally, the way Matthew wrote it, which gives an indication that he's trying to make us make the connection between the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. Look at the end of chapter 7 here. In verse 28, it says, When Jesus had finished these words, Jesus had finished these words. And then we have a chapter break which is often unfortunate because it, it makes us think, you know, that, that uh, there's no connection. But of course, there is a connection. And if you look down right after that, you see Jesus comes down from the mountain and he enters Capernaum and there is a Gentile who has faith. In fact, Jesus says in verse 10, look at verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. With anyone in Israel. So Jesus sets up this standard for the kingdom and says, no one can meet it, the only way in is me. And then immediately after that, when Jesus had finished this word, these words, there is this statement about Israel rejecting him and the Gentiles embracing him. You may have already left it, but if you were to look at chapter 25, you'd see the exact same thing. Chapter 25, the very end of that chapter, where he says, these go away into eternal punishment. Verse 26, when Jesus had finished all these words, exact same phrase. So what would you expect to find after that? But Israel rejecting Jesus, what do you see after that? That's exactly what we see. Verse 3, the chief priests and the elders, people gathered together. Verse 4, they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. So Matthew's putting these two things together to say that Israel lost the opportunity to go into the kingdom because they did not repent. But the Gentiles embraced Jesus, and their relationship with him is the key by which any of us get to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew, the whole Sermon on the Mount really focuses on, I'm not going to apologize making you going back and forth because we're all good Bible people, right? So if you've left chapter, 20, uh, chapter 7, go back to chapter 7. It's all right. We got this and one more, one more stop. And in that stop, we'll flip all over the place too. Matthew 7, the end of that chapter, we read where he says, depart from me in verse 23. And then look at chapter 24. Chapter 24, I'm sorry, chapter 24. Slow down, Wayne. Just focus. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 is the application of this. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came, and the floods came, and the wind blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. See, Jesus brings this final parable as the application to the Sermon on the Mount. And that is, when you hear my words, you're blessed if you do what? If you act on them. All right? You're not merely a hearer, you are 
a doer. Now, what book does that remind you of? James, exactly. So, let's turn to James. Interestingly, James, probably the first New Testament book written, he says in the very first verse that it's written to Jews, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So, this is written to uh, early Christians. And it is written in a context, if you were to analyze basically the whole book, you would amazingly find an incredible connection to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, you will find many of its themes in the book of James. In fact, just this morning, uh, I looked at, uh, uh, at this subject, and there are at least 15 connections, not necessarily direct references, but themes that connect to the Sermon on the Mount, not the least of which is the emphasis of be a doer. Don't just hear the word, but be a doer of the word. Amazing parallelisms. Um, I think it's the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, has Harriet, Harriet Beecher Stowe's classic, says this wonderful line. It says, don't the Bible say we must love everybody? And then someone responds, oh, the Bible, to be sure, it says a great many things but then no one ever thinks of doing them. Here in total is the problem that we find in James, and honestly, it's the problem we find in our lives, that we are very good at hearing the word. We are not so good at doing the word. I think about this when I get the impulse to buy a book and then it just sits on my nightstand for months, you know, to be a buyer of the book and not a reader of the book. And then it's not just that, but you want to be a doer of the book. Same with the Bible. It's not enough to buy a great Bible. Isn't it fun to get a new Bible? You know, it gives you the illusion of motivation. And then you've got to start reading it. And then when you read it, you think, ah, now I've got to apply it. This is James's primary goal. James chapter 1, look down at verse 22. It's almost a direct lift from the Sermon on the Mount. James 1.22, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The primary word... The primary goal for the Word of God is life change. Paul would tell Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is not knowledge. It's love. It's action. It is life change. And we, Christians in the Christian world, often will content ourselves with Three sad substitutes. I learned these from Dr. Howard Hendricks. Three sad substitutes. He says the first is just understanding. That we'll read the Bible and think, I understand that. Or our goal in reading the Bible is understanding. And it's a great place to be. There, is, there are a few things more satisfying than reading the Bible and, and going, I really understand that. It's, it's wonderful to get to that place. But it's not the goal. We sort of rationalize it that we understand it, we're done. Another is rationalization. This is where you hear something in the Bible and all of a sudden your elbow jerks because you think this doesn't apply to me, it applies to this person sitting next to me. Hey, are you listening? They just said something great. This is called ricochet conviction. <laughs> and the last, the last is very subtle because it moves us emotionally. The first is uh, understanding, the second is rationalization or the ricochet effect, and the last is just an emotional experience. When you read the Bible, you understand the Bible, and it deeply moves you. And you think, wow, I've been moved. And we think that's life change. It may lead to life change, but we often will just content ourselves with the good, warm, fuzzy feeling as opposed to life change. James says, be a doer of the word, not merely a hearer or a thinker or a feeler, but a doer. 
And he uses this wonderful example that we've, <laughs> I know we've talked about this before, it's such a great example of a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And the word that Paul, uh, Paul that James uses here for man is male. It doesn't mean a, a person, like a human, but a man, a male, who looks at his face in the mirror. Now, I went to the men's restroom before this class, and there are mirrors in there. There are mirrors in there. But I confess, I, didn't, I was standing right in front of it, and I didn't look. I was there to wash my hands. And uh, I, the only time I usually ever look in the mirror is to make sure I put my name tag on straight. It has nothing to do with my face. The face I just sort of take for granted, obviously. <laughs> this is the way men are, aren't we? We walk up to a mirror, and in about five seconds, we can, just, we can get it. We look, check the hair, check, check the nose, he's squeaky, squeaky, and we're all done. And we're, bye. But women, on the other hand, women come for business. Women are there for change. They are not there just to look and walk away and forget what we look like. Um, I ha had a friend years ago that I went to his house one morning, early morning. He asked me to bring him something, and I had no idea that his wife would answer the door or that I had no idea that this was his wife because every time I had seen her, she looked really different. <laughs> but I knocked on the door. The door opened and out came this face. Good morning. And I mean, it jolted me. First of all, I didn't recognize her. And then when I did, it was sort of like, whoa. I, I think it kept it under composure, but I mean, inside I was like, man, that's different. Women, women come for change. Women come for change. And in fact, they even carry little mirrors with them because change happens all throughout the day. Can you imagine a man carrying a mirror with, you, with him? That would just be funny. We use our phones, by the way. But the point is this. What good is it to look at your face in a mirror and to go away and do nothing about it. If I looked at my face in the mirror and I had chicken in my teeth or, you know, pepper stuck someplace ugly and I just sort of went, oh, look at that, and walked off, what good would that be? The purpose of the mirror is to reflect you so that you can change what needs to change. The Bible, James says, is our mirror. We look at it and it reflects reality. If we'll look at it intently, if we just give it a quick glance, then we're not going to see anything that needs changing. But if we look honestly into the Word of God, then we can see what needs to change. Verse 25, he makes this clear. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In other words, James says, a mirror shows you reality, and you make life change. You make life change. What good is it if we don't act on what we hear? What good is information without transformation? James tells us, what good is it? It's no use. In fact, at the end of verse 26, he even uses the word, it's worthless. This man's religion is worthless. And the, the word that he uses here in verse 26 for thinks, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, is from a word that means an opinion. If my opinion of myself is that I'm a religious person, and yet I don't bridle my tongue, I'm kidding myself. 
He says the man's religion is worthless. Now, let me tip my hand a little bit and say it doesn't mean that he doesn't have religion. We'll see that here in chapter 2. What it does mean is that his religion's worthless. He's got a religion, but he's not applying it. He is a hearer, but he is not a doer of it. And James lists several very convicting examples. The tongue, there in verse 26, and verse 27, to take care of the needy, to to meet legitimate needs, those in their distress, not every need, but legitimate needs, and the final one, wow, to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is true religion. If you considered yourself religious and you watch your tongue, you meet legitimate needs, and you work hard at living pure in in an unpure world, then your religion is true. It, It works. It's worth something, and it's not worthless. We see here a theme that we can trace all throughout the book of James. So just for a second, we looked at chapter 1. We'll see this in every single chapter. Let me just pick a verse and show you in every single chapter of this book. This is James follows this theme all throughout the book. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, immediately right there. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And he gives an example of somebody that comes into church that's not dressed as nice as everybody else, you make them sit over there in the corner where, you, where the people that are dressed nice and you think have some influence, you put them right up front. He says that's hypocrisy. Don't hold your faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. I love the way that's worded because it reflects reality. My brethren, he's talking to Christians. Out of our mouth come both things, don't they? Cursing and blessing of people. And yet we're told it ought not be this way. We ought not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. It ought not be this way. Now look at chapter 4. Verse 17, 417, therefore to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So you know the right thing to do. You're a hearer of the word, but you do not do it. You're not a doer of the word. And and finally, chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Here's a good example, a good example of those who heard the word and they actually lived the word. Verse 11 says, we count those blessed who endured. They lived it. In fact, of the 108 verses that are in the book of James, You can trust me, that's how many there are. 108 verses, 54 of the verses have imperatives or commands. So literally half the book. Every other verse averages a command. Be a doer. Do this. Apply the the Bible. Don't just hear the Bible. Apply the Bible. Half of the book of James focuses on that. And the context all throughout is don't just hear the word, live the word. So turn back to chapter 2, and let's deep dive on one of these issues. This was actually one of our questions. And it is such a good question. It begins in verse 14. James 2.14. James asks, you can see his theme, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? So the first part of that, that first question, makes sense to us. If someone says he has no faith, but he has no works. This is what we saw at the end of chapter 1. Says he's religious, but he doesn't bridle his tongue. It's worthless. Same questions asked. What use is it? What worth is it? 
what value, practical value is in our Christian life if we say we have faith, but we don't live our faith. If we're a hearer of the word, not a doer of the word. But then this question comes, can that faith save him? And there are various uh, interpretations all over the place. Basically, a very popular perspective is to say that if there isn't fruit in a life, um, if I don't discern fruit in your life, then you're not saved. If I don't see works in your life, if your faith does not live itself out in such a way that people can see your faith, then you're not saved. And I contend that that's not what James is saying. I think it's a legitimate question to ask, but I don't think that's what James is saying, as, we, as we'll see as we get into this. James's main question is the first question. What use is it? Or I like what, uh, how the NIV translates it. What good is it? What, what good does it do? When James asks, can that faith save him? Remember the first question. He's seeking the usefulness of faith, not the genuineness of faith. That's a key, key observation. The context of can that faith save him is in a context of James asking, what use is it, not is it real? What use is it? So what what does he mean then, can a workless faith save him? Save him from what? From hell? From death? From a bad reputation? That word save can mean all of those things. We, we tend to think save, hey, altar call. But is that what James is talking about? There's, thankfully, James uses that word more than once in the book. In fact, he uses the word save five times in the book. First time here. But look at chapter 5, verse 20. We'll see it used again. Last verse of the book of James. Chapter 5, verse 20. James says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, if you look at the context of that, look back up just prior to that, see that the context of this is someone who is sick Verse 14, and they call the elders of the church to come pray over them, to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and to pray over this person. And then we're told in verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Literally, that word is save. Literally. The prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. It is literally the same word, only a few verses apart, and yet the NASB here translates it differently. I really wish they'd, they're usually very consistent, and it must have been quite a conversation on the translation committee that day to uh, work through this. This is a tough passage, but I bring this up for you to just to look at it and to realize that context helps determine meaning. You don't just take a, a verse by itself. And so because this is all the same context and all the same topic, the, the topic here is physical restoration. And we're even told here in verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, etc. And then Elijah is given as a, an example of one who prays. And then the book ends with the verses that we just read. So the context here is of one who is sick and probably sick because they have sinned. And so when they're told that they need to confess their sins and then they will be healed, in other words, if the the sin is removed, then the reason for the sickness can be removed and then they will be restored. And the oil, the anointing with oil, is probably just the the effort of using first century medicine in that day. Honestly, that that particular part of this is not clear. But it doesn't mean that if, if if you have just a sickness to go to the elders and have them pray over you, Uh, and then you'll be healed because, I don't know about you, but I've seen that happen many times where they were not healed. In fact, I've been involved in praying over someone uh, as an elder, and they died. So, hey, I'll come pray for you anytime if you'd like. (laughs) 
This can't be what it means because we see so many exceptions. It can't simply mean that there's a guarantee of, of physical restoration. There's some special connection here, probably, to sin, which is why in the very last verse, he says, the one who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save, or you could translate it, restore his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. So James, the context of James is probably, back to chapter 2, is probably talking about saving your physical life. That it's not simply about uh, being a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, and then you, know, you just live an ineffective life. But it's also such, such a drag on your Christian life that, you, that God may even physically discipline you with premature death which is not terribly encouraging unless we are of the mindset to repent. And, of course, we are. So his question is, can that faith save him? Basically means, can a faith that have no works, a faith that refuses to apply what he or she knows, can that deliver him from the consequences of their sin? And James is saying, no. The implied answer is no. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he asked them, since we're saved by grace, should, should we basically sin because we can get away with it? Romans chapter 6. Shall I, shall I continue to sin because grace abounds? Paul says, no, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. He wrote to the Corinthians about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner because many were sick and died. But if they'd done what Paul said and repented, then they would be raised back up. So here in James 2, he's showing us that to answer his question, what use is it? You say you have faith, but a life that doesn't live up to the claim. And he gives an example, chapter 2, verse 15. Here's a good example. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is it? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So remember James's question. He repeats it twice. What use is it? Verse 14. What use is it? Verse 16. You see someone who has a legitimate need, a Christian, and you don't help meet that need. Why are you not applying the word? What use is it? You say you have faith, but you're not doing anything with it. And then he says, verse 17, faith without works is dead. And then he gives this example, this um, sort of mock conversation. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. I know different translations uh, will take this different directions, but it seems to me that James is saying here that someone wants to say it's either or. Verse 18, you, you have faith and I have works. In other words, I have faith, I don't really have any works to show it, you have faith with works, both are legitimate. And James is saying, well, it, it really doesn't make sense to say that you believe something and don't do anything with it. The demons are like that. They believe truth about God, but they don't apply it. You don't want to be like the demons. But then he repeats his question there in verse 20. Are you willing to recognize that faith without works is useless? And he gives another example, actually a couple, a very good example and a very bad example. Verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Oh! So I wonder if the Apostle Paul ever read the book of James before he wrote the book of Romans. A person, look at that. Take that verse out of context and all of a sudden, 
you're going to have a, a, a great verse to put on the, the mantle of a brand new cult. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone? Verse 24. I thought faith alone was like our whole thing. What is the context? The context is what do we mean by justified? Paul means justified in the sight of God. James doesn't mean that. He is saying, show me your faith. In other words, I can justify my faith or display my faith or prove my faith to you only by my good works. Words are cheap. Talk is cheap. Actions is what matters. And he gives two examples. Abraham, he not only had faith, but he lived it. He put his son Isaac on the altar. Rahab, the prostitutes. You've got this great example. You've got this not-so-great example. Rahab, the prostitute, verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's don't take his metaphor and make it walk on all fours, as it were. Look at what he's saying in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead. So we've all seen that. Been to funerals, loved one, friend. We see them there, and there's something about a dead body. You look at a dead body and you think, that is just, there's nobody there. I mean, you can tell they're dead. But there's a body. There's no life in it. James says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean that there's no faith. There is a body, but it just lies there. It needs the spirit. It needs action for there to be life and animation and conversation and everything. The point being, can you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ and yet not really have a life of works that shows it for it, that shows it at least to others? You can, hence, the, all these commands that you need to not do that, <laughs> that you need to uh, obey the word and not just be a hearer of the word. I read an interesting article just this week, or actually it was a couple of weeks ago, about a lady. I'm trying to remember where she was. I think she was in Ecuador. Uh, she was in this hospital in Ecuador, and this doctor came up to her, and she had had a stroke. He proclaimed her dead. They took her to the funeral home, stuck her in the casket. Five hours later, the family opens the casket to change her clothes for the funeral, and she sits up and goes, <gasps> and gasps for a breath. I bet that was a fun moment, wasn't it? <laughs> it's one thing to be proclaimed dead, but it's another thing to actually be dead. So often in our Christian lives, and I'll say myself as well, we're like that, that lady in the casket that by all observable looking at our lives, we're not applying the Bible and it looks like we're dead. And then in, in fits and starts, we'll sit up and gasp for air and actually apply it. James is challenging us not to be that way. James is saying, don't just be a corpse Christian. Don't just be a wheelchair Christian hypocrite. But when you hear the word, apply the word. So I have one simple application for you, which... We already hammered it home 800 times, but I'll say it in a different way that maybe it'll help you remember it a little better tomorrow morning. Never close your Bible without something to apply. Never close your Bible without something to apply. In fact, if you think you might not remember that, you could write it on a post-it note or something and put that post-it note right on the front of your Bible because as soon as you close your Bible, you'll see it. Never close your Bible without something to apply. You close your Bible. There are many mornings that I'm done with my reading, and I think, okay. And then I'll think, what did I just read? Or I'll think, now, wait a minute. What am I going to chew on throughout the day? What am I going to think about? What am I going to apply today? Never close your Bible without something to apply. Haddon Robinson said that when he was just a kid, they were coming home from church, and Haddon uh, uh, was talking to another little boy, and this other little boy told him what he had heard that morning about the, uh, I think it was the Good Samaritan, and Haddon said, what did you learn from the story? 
And the little boy said, yeah, the, the point of the Good Samaritan is whenever I'm in trouble, you better help me. <laughs> so it's so easy to see how this can apply to everybody else or how the goal of the Word of God is for you to help me. It starts first, James says, with our own religion, that is our own heart. We bridle our tongue, we help genuine needs, and we keep ourselves from being unstained by the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we remember Moses' words to Israel, which were really your words when you said, this is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. We have the privilege of daily reading your word, of hearing inspired text in our mind, or even if we read it out loud, just as the people on the Sermon on the Mount heard Jesus' words, just as the disciples with the Olivet Discourse heard Jesus' words, just as we read this morning the words of James. We've heard the word, and throughout our day, we have application or opportunities for application. So tomorrow, as we spend precious time with you and wherever you have us in the scriptures, would you give us the conviction to not close our Bible without something to apply? Because this is why you've given it to us, not just for knowledge, not just for an emotional experience or understanding, though these, these are all great beginnings but for application, that we may proclaim into the world the light, the salt that we are that makes a difference in influencing others for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. That was a great blessing. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.